Uh, these are some, some thoughts that are not my original thoughts, and I don't mean that I got them from the Lord. I mean, I heard these preached, and we just felt a lot of the Lord being here that in this chapter that we'd go ahead and, and preach. Uh, on these things. Uh, before we read in Exodus 14, I want you to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to read verse 6 and 7. Sometimes in, in our lives, God leads us to a place where there's no way. And he does so for the purpose that he can make a way. To render himself glorious. There's a lot of times, whether he leads us there or we get ourselves in these predicaments, and you know, fear takes over. And God gave us a fight or flight instinct within us. That, that's, that's so we would continue to exist. And because of sin, it's been corrupted. So a lot of times we have a fight, or a fear experience, rather. And I want to read here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I want to read verse 6 and 7. Paul says to Timothy, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God didn't give, you that are here this morning and saved, He didn't give us a spirit of fear, but He gave us a spirit of of power, and that word power there is that divine power, that dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from. He's given us that divine power. He's given us the uh, spirit of love and the spirit of a sound mind. And so whenever we get into situations, whenever we get into predicaments where there is no way we have to remember we don't have a spirit of fear. A lot of times we, we get there, don't we? We look round about us and, and we see things. So I want to look here in Exodus chapter 14. I've titled this Rules to Live By. Rules to Live By. And I want to read verse 1, uh, just verse 1, 2, and, and 3. To begin the message, it says in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pehahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal Before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in. Now, We have here, and we look at this, the children of Israel had come to this place. And there they were, they were in a, in a, in a, in a, 
in a valley, in a, in a, I wrote down what it's called. A gulch, a small ravine. As we said last week, they were hemmed in. On the one hand were mountains, on the other hand were mountains. In front of them was the Red Sea, and behind them was the most, the, the, the greatest army of that time period. And there couldn't be a, a greater difference. You have the children of Israel, a newly formed nation of slaves, no weapons, no military training. They weren't a seagoing people. And behind them you had Pharaoh's army with some 600 plus chariots bearing down on them. And they were mad. Oh, they were mad. And sometimes we get into predicaments, we get into places, and we just go to pieces, just like the world does. What are we going to do? We get that spirit affair and we say, well, what if this and what if that and what if this and oh, this might happen and this, that and the other. We don't have the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, do we? We become unraveled and unnerved. In fact, we often are worse than lost people. And so I want to look this morning at some rules. Some rules to live by. Pray that these will help you, help me, help us as a church, help us as we go forward in the work of the Lord and the day in which we live in. These are timeless. These are timeless rules. These are, these are rules that are as, as evidenced, as universal, as necessary as the law of gravity. And if you try to, you climb up on the roof and you say, I'm going to break the law of gravity and you jump off the roof, the law of gravity is going to break you. And if you violate these laws or these rules, we're the ones that are going to get broken. So the first thing I want to look at, rule number one, is God put me exactly where He wants me to be. Now, we're going to qualify that. But I want you to observe here in Exodus 14 and verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pehi, Pehahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. So how did they get to that gulch? How did they get in that ravine? God put them there. Now there are other times when you and I will disobey God and put ourselves in certain places. This was where they obeyed God and they were put into a place. Well, guess what? Whether you got yourself there through disobedience or whether you're there because you obeyed God, the only way out of it is trusting the Lord. That's it. God is sovereign, He's omnipotent, He's omniscient. 
And if you're in a place He doesn't want you to be, He'll move you. And God moves people through the preaching of His Word. God moves people. It's not just, well, I'm here and this is where God wants me to be. If He wants me to move, He'll move me. He just told you through the sermon and His Word, you need to move. But we're so thick-headed and stubborn that we expect a bolt of lightning. We are as bad as an evil and adulterous generation. We can say, oh, they seek after a sign. We're just as bad in a lot of ways. Because we want God to show me something. He just told us in His Word to move. And so don't always think, well, if God wants me to move, He'll move me. God is saying, you need to move. You need to get going. And He does it through His Word. I assure you, based on my own personal experience, you will rather be moved by God's Word than for God to pick you up and move you. Amen. You would rather just listen to Him and do what He says. Amen. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. The book of Jonah, chapter 1. We recently spoke on the, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And I want to show you here, you know, as we said, God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh, didn't He? He said, I want you to go there and I want you to preach repentance. I'm going to destroy that place because of sin. Their sin has come up before me. And I want you to go and preach repentance that they might repent and they might be delivered. And the Bible tells us in Jonah chapter 1, and Jonah 1 and verse 3, or verse, uh, verse let's look at verse 2. God says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now notice, is that where God wanted him to be? Certainly not. And so verse 4 but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. I, I, I can't even imagine. What a harrowing experience. All because he disobeyed the Lord. And then you know the story, chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, where did God want Jonah to go? Nineveh. Where did he try to go? Tarshish. What did God do? He relocated him. Sometimes it's not a place. Sometimes it's a mentality. Sometimes it's a spirit that we have about ourselves. Sometimes... You're in a place of unthankfulness. Sometimes you're in a place of self-pity and God says, that's not where I would have you to be. So He'll move you. And I believe that God always seeks to move us by His Word. Isn't that what He did with Jonah? Jonah was there, minding his own business. He was a prophet. And God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. First thing, tried to move him by His Word. Second thing, what happened? He didn't go. So what did he do? Sent a big storm. 
You ever have a storm in your life? Amen. Ever have some things happen? My grandfather said, I heard my father say it more than I heard my grandfather says, Jonah went to Whale University to learn to obey God. Look over in the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel, chapter 4. Here's a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, you remember Nebuchadnezzar. He was one who, he was a place very full of pride. He said, oh, look at this great kingdom I got. I did this all by my own hand. Didn't realize that God had given it to him. And so what God do? He said, here's what's going to happen to you, king. Let's read Daniel 4 and verse 29. Daniel chapter 4. And I want you to read here verse 29. We'll read several verses. It says, in the, At the end of twelve months, he walked into the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? So there's the king. Where is he at? Very prideful place. Daniel 4, verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason return unto me, for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness return unto me, and my counselors and my Lord sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. So sometimes God's going to move you out of a prideful state into another state. Say, well, God's never, I've been prideful. God never had me go out and, and go seven years and my nails never grew and so forth. Well, he gave you the story of Nebuchadnezzar. So you'd listen to that and humble yourself before God. See, he's moving you by his word. Now, our text tells us in Exodus 14 that God led the people into a place of no way, a place of no escape. Two mountain ranges. In front of them is the Red Sea. At this point in the Red Sea, I'm told it was a minimum of eight miles across, some 800 feet deep. 
I, that's, what I, that's what I've read. I, 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 ha, I didn't go there and measure it. As we said last week, they were hemmed in. And so often, when we get hemmed in, we think this surely cannot be the place that God has led us to. And this is where we need discernment. This is where we need Holy Spirit discernment. Because our text tells us that God led them there. Now, in the case of Jonah, God didn't lead him to go to Tarshish, did He? God permitted him to go a portion of the way there. So we need discernment. We can't just say, wherever I'm at, oh, this is where God wants me to be. If you're lost, the Bible says you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to come in to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're saved, you need to be a member of His kind of a church. That is where you need to be. That's what His Word says. And so you need discernment by this book and the help of the Spirit of God that you're not sitting here way off, afar off from Christ and saying, oh, God wants me, has me where I'm supposed to be. Oh, I'm disobeying God. I'm not, I'm not following the Lord in scriptural baptism, being a member of this kind of a church. God, God's got me where He wants me to be. But here they were in a gulch. And this was where he wanted to be because his word literally said, Moses, you put him right here and tell him to, to encamp. Set up camp. And so this is where they were supposed to be and this is the place that God put them. And I want you to notice here that there, that's a place we ought to thank God for. I mean, here they were, two mountain ranges, eight miles of sea, 800 feet deep, and behind them an army bearing down on them, and they ought to have thanked God. When we get into our predicaments, do we thank God? I, I pray that as we go further in this message, we'll see this, but do we thank God? You ever thank God for an illness? You ever thank God for a tragedy, as we call them, in your life that's happening to you? One writer, he put it this way. He said, if we are better at thanking God for our blessings and our trials, then we are a shameful Christian. You see, it's in the trials, that's where God purifies and corrects us. That's where He makes us more like Christ. That's where all the dross is burnt off. That's where all the fashioning like under the glories of His image, the, the glorious image of His dear Son. That's where that takes place is when He puts you in a no way out situation. And every one of us, if you've been saved more than five seconds, you've been in a no, no win, no way situation. In fact, God hems you in when He saves you. There's no way out except with Christ, is there? Amen.
And so we need to thank God for putting in these problematic, difficulty, trials, distresses. No wonder James said, when he wrote about these trials and tribulations, he said that we ought to count them as joy, all joy. Because when we're there, God's going to do some work. If the manner of our Christianity is, I just got a raise, praise God, thank you Jesus. I just got a new car, praise God, thank you Jesus. And not, I just, got, I just lost my job, praise God, thank you Jesus. My car won't start, praise God. Then all we are are fair weather Christians. That's all we are. I mean, when, when things are going well, oh, God's wonderful. When things are going bad, oh, God, you're, you're terrible. The Bible tells us that we are to give thanks in all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Do you realize, do we realize, do I realize that most Christians, most people are destroyed by what are called blessings. Most people are destroyed by them. I want you to think about this. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is that sewing instrument. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Andrew Fuller said this, he said, God thinks so little of the treasures of this earth that He heaps them upon His worst enemies. God destroys people with what the world calls a blessing. So I want to ask you this morning, how many... How many Red Sea experiences do you have in your life where God had to make a way? Where He led you to a place where there's no way out and He's going to make a way? He's going to, to, to do something that only He can do. I want you to think about this passage here in a historical sense. This was about, you know... Thousands of years ago. I mean, this is, you know, we're probably looking at here 2,000, you know, 4,000 4, years ago, and this is still being preached today. And God does similar things in your life. And we're so busy, we take for granted when God opens up Red Seas in our lives. And we're so busy that we don't even acknowledge it. This here was something Israel as a nation is going to look back on all their history. If God's going to make a way, it's going to have to start with thanksgiving to God. I remember last year, maybe some of you remember, August, I got COVID. 
Three days is a real bad flu. Got done with that. And then for about three weeks, it was the worst anxiety and depression I have ever had. I'm not a depressed person. But it was awful. And there's still bouts, still some nights, can't sleep real well. And my mind will go down the what-if rabbit trail. And it is awful. And I thank God that during that time, I didn't see these rules. I had, I had neglected them and forgotten about them. But during that time, I remember my father, he preached on one of the kings of Judah, how that when he was sick and God came to him, he said, you're going to die. And he turned to the wall and he prayed unto God. That's all I could do was pray. All I could do was turn to God. So do we turn to God for thanksgiving? Do you turn to God? Maybe you're not sick. Maybe you don't have something. But have you turned to God yet and said, God, you've got me here. This is where you brought me to. I've got cancer. I've got a heart attack. I've got this, that, or the other. But you've got me here and I'm hemmed in. How about going a little step further? How about thank you? Thank you for this illness. And all things give thanks. How about thank you? I look back now, I thank God. That was probably one of the most spiritual times of my life. When God hems you in and all you have is to look to Him it'll be one of the greatest spiritual experiences you'll ever have. That's rule number one. Rule number two is we ought to be more concerned for His glory than our deliverance. More concerned for His glory than for our deliverance. In Exodus 14, verse 3 and 4, the Bible says this, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel that are entangled in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When we're in this hemmed in, when we're in this gulch, when we're, we're in, in a no way of escape, a no way we can get out of it, are we more concerned about God being glorified or are we more concerned about us being delivered? He says here in this verse, I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. Look over in chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. I want to read to you here verse a uh, few verses here. This is the song after God delivers them. It's the song of Moses. And they sing this hymn and notice verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake saying, I will sing unto the Lord 
For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. How about verse 11? Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee? Or who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? How about verse 14? The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestinia. That's, that's where they're going. That's the land of Canaan, Palestine. He says, when they hear what you've done here at the Red Sea, they're going to be terrified of you. Verse, verse 15, Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab trembling shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. He said all, all the people are going to be in awe and fearful of Jehovah. How about the next uh, verse, verse 21, And Miriam answered him, singing to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So there's a lot of rendering God glorious, isn't there? A lot of times all we want is the trial to end. Well, how about, are we interested in God being glorified? What is the purpose of you putting me in this gulch, Lord? Why am I here? In what way that I'm here? How can I render you glorious? Thirdly, rule number three, Exodus 14 and verse 10. Pray fervently. Pray fervently. I know we're all familiar with what James said, that the... <clears throat> that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. If you're saved, you're righteous. God took care of the righteous man part. It's our job to take care of the effectual fervent praying. In Exodus 14 and verse 10, it says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. They cried out unto the Lord. Do you know what the word fervent means? And in Strong's Concordance, James 5.16, it says the word fervent means to be active or to work. And that's true, but, but really what it's expressing here is a, an overactivity, a pouring oneself into it. It is a pouring one's heart out. You ever see somebody sing a special and you can tell they're just pouring their heart into that song? You ever sing a song and it's like somebody took the emotions and thoughts and the contents of your heart and put it on a hymn and you said that. Is how I feel. 
Ever see a sermon where a minister, he's preaching his heart out? This is fervent prayer. They are pouring their hearts into their prayers. See, God commands fervency in our prayers. And if you put three these three things together, number one, thanking and acknowledging God that I am where I'm supposed to be. You've got me here. Number two, that if we will seek for His glory first, and thirdly, if we'll pray fervently, we'll see some miraculous things take place. Maybe people will be healed of diseases they shouldn't be healed of. Or maybe they won't be. But they'll render God glorious in a situation they otherwise wouldn't. How about Samson? He had a rough life, didn't he? A lot of his own doing. He gets down to the end. He's with the Philistines. What's he do? He cries out unto the Lord, Let me be avenged of mine enemies. And he destroyed more in his death than he had in his whole life. He prayed fervently. How about the early church? You know, the early church, they, they were preaching the Word of God and they were suffering persecution Simon Peter, he gets put into prison. James is killed. Stephen's dead. Here's Simon Peter, he's now in prison. Herod's going to kill him too. And they prayed. They had an all-night prayer meeting. And in the middle of the night, the earth shook, the jail opened up, Peter goes out, First he thought it was a dream. Then he realized it's not a dream. He gets to the house. He knocks on the door where the prayer meeting's at. The lady opens the door. She sees Peter. She's so excited. She doesn't let him in. She goes and tells everybody it's Peter. They said, oh, you've seen his spirit. No, it's Peter. They show up. It's Peter. He tells them all what happened. Fervent prayer. Pouring your heart out into it. We want to see some certain people in your life that God has burdened your heart with for salvation. Pour your heart out in prayer. Not, God, you know what I want, save them. And then two weeks later, oh, I forgot. A fervency in prayer. I mean, it's a reality. Your kids want something and they ask you and they ask you and they ask you and they ask you and they ask you. You're more likely to get it for them than if they ask you once. Six weeks later, they ask you about it again. Another six weeks goes by. But if they're fervent, I gotta have this. I need this. I need it for this. I want this. I want it for that. And they keep after it, keep after it, keep after it. How much more you think a good father 
in heaven is going to answer fervent prayers. Got anybody who needs to be added unto this church? Who's saved? You know anybody who's sick? Ill? Got a disease? Are there any walls, spiritual walls like Jericho that need to come down in your life? Are there any sins that have taken hold, that are deep-rooted, that need to be overcome? Fervent prayer availeth much. We're not praying fervently. You know all the great revivals, all the great things that have taken place in yesteryear, and we look back on those to whole, look at all the things that were done. It was done with fervent prayer. Amen. Rule number four. Verse 13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord which He will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. Rule number four, wait on the Lord. All through the Bible, God commands us to wait on the Lord, to stand still. There's times God tells us to go, times He tells us to stand still. In fact, you know, the Egyptian nation, the Egyptian army and the nation never been the same ever since this day. So many times we think waiting on the Lord means doing nothing. But that's not so. This is the period, this standing still and waiting on God, this is the period where God develops faith. Never get to the point where you think God is through with you. Or that God's written you off. Or there's nothing more for you to do. Never get to that point. I know some of you, you're, you're, you're going on in years. Physically, you're declining. Mentally, you're declining. You know, just different things are declining. If God was done with you, you wouldn't be here. I know that's cliche-ish, but it's true. If God was done with the Bible Baptist Church of Plant City, it wouldn't be here. And so we need to remember that this is a time when God is going to cultivate faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is, and God's going to cultivate that. There's some people, I kid you not, they must, they must be a ministry of sucking out hope. I mean, they're like a, a Hoover vacuum. They just go around sucking hope out of everybody. Just a giant succubus. That's all they are. 
You got a little bit of hope? I'll take that. And that's what this time is, where you wait on God because He's going to cultivate faith. Our nature, it's amazing, our nature is not to stand still. But God tells us at certain times, He says, you need to stand still because I'm going to do something and He's going to build our faith. He said in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Now the Bible tells us that God answered them. If you remember, we read in verse 10, they saw the, the, the Egyptian army bearing down them and they were sore afraid and they cried unto the Lord. And the Bible tells us in verse 13, and Moses said unto the people, what's the first thing he said? Fear ye not. So the first thing is, you need to calm down and wait on God. It would be nice if we get excited about the work of the Lord as much as we get excited about all these worldly things. This is the time where He's going to cultivate faith because next is rule number five. And rule number five is take the next step of faith. In Exodus 14 and verse 15, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Now, notice, we made this, tried to bring it out last week, verse 16, But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Remember, he tells him to go forward before he tells Moses to part the water. He's cultivating faith so we'll take the next step of faith. I'm told that there were some two million children of Israel. And that in order for them to cross eight miles of the Red Sea on dry land, if they moved at a space of three miles an hour on average, which is not likely. It's probably a little slower. They got all their stuff. They got their kids. They got the elderly. Plus they're whining and complaining about everything. It would have took about 12 hours. And that rift, that opening in the Red Sea would have had to have been 55 miles wide to get that many people across. That's from an engineer, uh, Army Corps engineer. That was his, his numbers. And before that water's ever parted, God says, go forward. Go forward. So what does God want you to do? What is He calling you to do? What is it that He's telling you to do? Go forward. You can't see it yet, but it'll be there if you'll take 
the step. Go forward. Spurgeon said, Our business is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies at hand. Well, what's, what's at hand? Nobody's worried about, well, in the next so many years and so on and so forth and this, that, and the other. What is at hand right now? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's right in front of your face right now? And so, here's these rules. Number one, God put us here. Or, God permitted us to be here. I need Him to get me out. I need to be there with thanksgiving. God, thanks for letting me know that I'm in a place I shouldn't be. God, thanks for leading me to this place that it's there's no way of escape. And then go on with each one. Proceed through. Think, God, how can I render You glorious in this experience? How can I go through having this disease? How can I go through this illness? How can I go through this trial and tribulation and You be glorified in it? Remember what Paul said? I besought the Lord three times to remove this this thorn in the flesh. And God said, My grace is sufficient for thee. He didn't remove it, did He? He may not deliver you because in that trial, He'll be rendered more glorious. Then we need to pray fervently, wait on the Lord, and then walk by faith. These are rules to live by. These are rules that I have often neglected to live by. That spirit of fear, when things happen and that spirit of fear hits, you get hit so hard you forget the rules. You're so dazed and confused. All you want is the pain or whatever's happening to stop. God said, here's how it's done. Look unto me and be ye saved. And that's what we need to do. I pray God will bless His Word. Let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer.